the B-I-B-L-E Yes, that's the book for me I stand alone on the word of God The B-I-B-L-E The B-I-B-L-E Yes, that's the book for me I stand alone on the word Hey, Bob, what are you doing? Uh, nothing, just cleaning up a little. Hey, so before we jump into this, I want to give you a quick update on the facility I've been asked some great questions about, so I thought I'd pause right here for a minute and I'll let you know a couple of things. Today is Commitment Sunday, and all that means is this. This is a day when we ask all of you who want to participate in helping to give towards the facility to let us know what you're going to give. So if you haven't done that, we would love for you to do that today, or if you need some time this week to do that some point this week. There's a table right up there on your right as you leave. You can stop there and get more information or uh, let them know how you're going to participate. And the reason we're doing this, in case you didn't know, is because this just helps us to plan to be able to figure out what we're going to be able to do and uh, how financially we can be very wise in how we approach it. So we appreciate you doing that so very much, and we're really excited. I've been having a lot of conversations over the last couple of weeks with uh, leaders from the city, and uh, we're really excited because they are really excited about what we're doing with this facility and about how, yeah, it's going to provide us a home as a church, but, you know, we're going to hold it with open hands, and it's going to be available for the community to use for some different stuff throughout the year, and they are so excited about that and the value that's going to add. So Thanks so much for making that possible. And I wanted to put a date on your radar and remind you that we're going to have a night of worship on March the 10th. Now, let me flag that. That's highlighted for a reason, because I've been telling everybody for a few weeks now it's March the 3rd, which would have been great, except we had a scheduling conflict this week. So March the 10th, we're pushing it uh, one week later, so make note of that. But March the 10th, 7 o'clock, we're going to do a special night of worship right here. And that night, I'm going to get to share with you how many people in our church are participating in this, how much we've committed to give, and what the timeline's going to be, and our next steps with the building. So that is going to be a really, really fun night. I think you're going to be blown away at what God is doing, and so uh, I hope you'll be there for, at that, and I hope you'll participate. My only goal I've had in this is everybody participate, because... At the end of this, I just don't want you sitting on the sideline seeing a story that God has um, written and you not being a direct part of it. So I hope you'll participate in whatever way you can and whatever way you want to. But we would love to see everyone involved in this so that you can be a part of not just a story that we're going to tell, but, but there will be an experience for you that you can share. So March 10th, don't forget that. All right, so today here's what I want to do. We're in part three of the Bible for grown-ups, and if you're just joining us, this series is for adults who were introduced to the Bible as kids and adults who were introduced to the Bible by adults who were introduced to the Bible as kids. Basically, it's for all of us for this reason, because most of us know some stories in the Bible, whether you're a church person or not, Christian or not, you know some of those. But 
Very few of us actually know the story of how we got the Bible, and that's important to know for this reason. If you don't understand how we got the Bible, you will misunderstand what's in the Bible. When you don't understand how we got the Bible, then it's really easy to dismiss or discount the content, the stories, the teachings that are in the Bible. And the problem, the reason we misunderstand it is because we don't realize how you got your Bible and how I got my Bible is not how we got the Bible. How you got your Bible and I got mine was we, it was given to us as one book and it was all complete. It was chaptered and verse, mapped and wrapped, like everything was there and it was just, okay, there's a book and you ought to read it and you ought to do the deal. But that is not how we got the Bible. The Bible is a much more, the story of how we got it's a much more fascinating story. It's a much more compelling story. The story of how we got the Bible doesn't even begin in the beginning of the Bible, which is kind of strange. But to understand how we got the Bible, you don't start with the beginning of the Bible. You actually start in the first century, as I've said, with this extraordinary event that we call the resurrection. And it is because of the resurrection and only because of the resurrection that a flurry of activity happened that led people to document the accounts of the life of Jesus. But if there had been no resurrection, there would have been no need to write these accounts. And yet people wrote multiple accounts of the life of Jesus. We have four of them still today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You probably have heard of all four of those. But again, if there hadn't been a resurrection, Matthew would have saw no need to write an account of the life of a man who claimed to be God and then died on a Roman cross and was buried in a tomb, and that was the end of the story. Mark would have seen no need. Luke would have seen no need. John would definitely have not seen a need to have recorded all of these events. The reason they wrote these accounts is very simple. It was because something extraordinary happened in the first century, and once the resurrection happened, it changed everything. A group of people, including some of these individuals, who had abandoned Jesus at his death, suddenly refollowed once they saw him alive again, which is the most rational thing to do when you see a man die and come back to life. And then they said, okay, we're in from this point forward. And they began to record the accounts of his life. And then a man by the name of the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish Pharisee, turned Jesus follower, and we'll talk more about him next week. But Paul began to take this message of the resurrection and the message of Jesus, and he began to spread it to all these little towns and cities along the Mediterranean rim, and suddenly Gentiles, non-Jewish people, began to follow Jesus in large, large numbers. And that is where we're going to pick up the story from last time. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember I said this. When Gentiles became interested in one particular Jew, once they became interested in following Jesus, they became interested in the sacred text of the Jews. What was known then as the Jewish scriptures, what we call sometimes now the Old Testament. But here's what happened when the Gentiles became interested in this. It created some significant conflict and tension between non-Jewish people and Jewish people who were both following Jesus. And the reason for that is simply this. These Gentile people took these Jewish scriptures, but they didn't refer to them or think of them as Jewish scriptures anymore. They thought of them as Christian scriptures, and they began to incorporate them into their Christian worship. Meanwhile, the Jews who followed Jesus, and especially the Jews who didn't follow Jesus, couldn't understand that, and they went, no, no, no. These are still Jewish scriptures, and you need to think of them as Jewish scriptures, but these Gentile people said, no, we're not going to think of them that way. And the Jewish people said, well, wait a minute, you're hijacking our scriptures. We've had these scriptures for centuries and centuries and centuries, and now you're just hijacking them and claiming them like your own. And the Gentile people said, why, yeah, we are, and we're not interested in hearing what you think about your own scriptures. We're not interested in you interpreting the meaning of your scriptures for us because Jesus was predicted in your own scriptures and you missed him. And so if you can't even see your own Messiah who was predicted in your own scriptures, then we're just going to you know, take this for ourselves because they weren't interested in the scriptures 
because they wanted to know more about the Jewish religion. They were interested in the scriptures simply because it was the backstory to Jesus. And so as you could imagine, there was a significant conflict that arose. It started in the first century. It continued on into the second century. It was so bad that at one point, if you read the letter that Paul wrote to Christians and Romans, Paul actually addresses this tension. And he says to the Gentile, non-Jewish people, he says, listen, you've got to stop acting like you're superior to the Jew. Have you forgotten Jesus was a Jew? You ought to be grateful for the Jewish people. You shouldn't act superior to them. So there was this tension that they were constantly having to try to address, that they were constantly having to try to fix. But what ended up happening in the midst of all of that tension and conflict and all of that transition was that the story, the purpose of the Jewish scriptures, the story and the purpose, the history of the Jewish people that's told in these scriptures, it tended to get lost by these Gentiles. And they began to look at these Jewish scriptures strictly through the lens of how it pointed to and predicted the Messiah, which is true. They looked at it strictly from the standpoint of, well, there's a backstory to Jesus, which was true. But they lost and didn't understand this extraordinary, epic, gritty story that's told in the Jewish scriptures of the Jewish people and the purpose that God had for them. So, here's what I want to do today. We're going to take a fast, fast journey through the Jewish scriptures. And I, we're going to do it from a 30,000 foot view, okay? So everybody just buckle up and lock in for the next few minutes because we're going to take a big picture overview, but I want to take you through the Jewish scriptures and help you to see this extraordinary, epic, gritty story that God was telling through these people. And then we'll talk about how it connects with and applies to us at the end. So we began last week with Genesis, with Moses, who wrote the account of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But we began in Genesis where Moses introduced God to the Jewish people as creator. But very quickly, if you've ever read Genesis, you will recognize that Moses shifts from talking about God as creator to very quickly talking about God as founder. And suddenly you see in these Jewish scriptures that God has a purpose for the Jewish people, and that is to begin or to found a nation through them. And he did that in Genesis, we're told, starting with one man and an extraordinary story of the life of Abraham. Now, if you don't know much about Abraham, he was about 75 years old when God first comes to him. Abraham has no children. He's married. Other than that, they have no kids. And God comes to him and he says, I'm going to make you three big promises I'm going to make your name great. All the peoples in the world are going to be blessed through you. And you're going to be the father of a nation. You're going to have many, many kids, many, many descendants. To which Abraham's like, are you kidding me? We don't even have a child, and I'm too old to have a child. And yet what ends up happening is, as you read through the accounts that Moses wrote, is that Abraham and his wife Sarah do have a child. And that child leads to two more kids for their child, two grandkids for Abraham and Sarah, which lead to 12 sons who are all great-grandchildren. And that leads to more and more descendants to the point that a nation-state, a people group, is formed out of the family of Abraham. And then through a series of uh, remarkable events, because of a famine that happens in the land, these Jewish people, these descendants of Abraham, end up in the land of Egypt because one of their own is second in command to Pharaoh. And they survive the famine, and they just thrive and prosper in the nation of Egypt. But years go by, years go by, and the current Pharaoh no longer knows the story, no longer knows the history, no longer understands why these Jewish people are there. And their, their people group has gotten so large that they're threatening to the Egyptians. And so the Pharaoh takes them and makes them slaves. And then for generations, they serve the Egyptians as slaves. 
400 years after initially setting foot in Egypt, 400 years after living in their own land, Moses enters the scene. You guys have heard of Moses. And he shows up and he looks at Pharaoh and he says, okay, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to, God may want me to let his people go, but I'm not going to do it. We're not just letting all these people walk out. They're slave labor and it's how we build our pyramids and it's how we build our temples and it's how we get, build roads. They're how we get everything done in this country. I'm not just going to let them go. And so God speaks to Pharaoh in the only language that Pharaoh understands. He speaks to Pharaoh through power and through violence. And eventually Pharaoh says, okay, they can go. And if you know much about the story, you know that they exit the land of Egypt, and they're free, but they've never tasted freedom. This generation, they're free, but they don't know what to do with their freedom. They're free, but they have no idea how to function as a free people. And so Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, something extraordinary happens. God gives Moses, and God gives the Jewish people what is often referred to as the Sinai Covenant. Now, you may have never heard that term. But the Sinai Covenant is another way of saying the law of Moses. The Sinai Covenant included the Ten Commandments. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. But it was far more than that. The Sinai Covenant was God's way of saying to the Jewish people, we're going to have a special relationship. And I told your uh, ancestor Abraham about this, but you've been in Egypt and you've forgotten, so I want to remind you all that I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to give you a land in which you will live and thrive because I have a divine purpose for you. You, Jewish people, are a divine means to a divine end. I am going to reveal myself to the entire world through you. So when you get to the land that I'm taking you to, I don't want you to live like all the Egyptians lived. I don't want you to live like all the people in the land you're going to live in live. Nope. You're to live differently. You're to live in such a way that people see the way I create human beings to live, the way you were intended to live. And this Sinai covenant is going to show you how to live properly. It's going to show you how to live in a healthy way, and it's going to show you how to live in such a way that people get a glimpse of me through you. And then God tells them this. As long as you follow my guidelines, as long as you live in such a way that you accurately reflect who I am, I'm going to bless you. Things are going to go well. As long as you're faithful to me, everything's going to be good. If you're unfaithful to me, then I'm going to allow you to feel the uh, wrath uh, or the weight of, your conse- of the consequences of your decisions. And you're going to end up, if you want to live like those peoples that live nearby, if you want to live like this country or this country instead of like I've said, fine, you can live like them, but I'm going to let you get your fill of that. And you're going to feel the consequences of that to the point that you're going to decide to come back. So it's very interesting because the relationship between God and the Jewish people was 100% unconditional. It would not change. But the experience that God and the Jewish people had with one another was very conditional. It was an if-then relationship. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do that, then I'll do that. Now, before you get too hung up on that, that's just like every good parenting relationship, isn't it? You're my son, you're my daughter, I'm going to love you unconditionally. However, if you do this, this is a consequence. If you do this, here's the reward. I mean, it's just the way it works. And that's how God set up this relationship with the Jewish people in the Sinai Covenant. And he gave them not 10 commandments. He gave them 613 commandments. They were moral laws, they were civil laws, and they were religious laws. Now, real quickly before we go on. I want to address something here that I hear fairly often, and maybe you've heard it, you know, from friends or watched people and had a professor in college, whatever, who brought this up. 
The Sinai covenant is often used as one of the reasons why you should never be a Christian, you should never follow God, because they say, look at the stuff that's in the Sinai covenant. If I, you know, there's no way I'm going to follow a God who demands or expects that. And part of the reason that they have those kinds of criticisms is, is they don't understand the full perspective of the Sinai covenant. But about two years ago, maybe three years ago, I was reading a book by Richard Dawkins. Richard's one of the new atheists that are so popular today. I was reading his book called The God Delusion, and he levied this criticism against God and against Christianity by leveraging or utilizing the Sinai Covenant. I want to read you what he had to say. For some of you, you're going to be like, that is so harsh. But this is just the perspective of a lot of people who are looking from the outside in. Here's what Dawkins wrote. He said, Judaism, which is the religion of the Jews, Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh, I don't even know where he gets that, with his own superiority over rival gods, and with the exclusiveness of his chosen desert tribe. Now, you might read that and think, well, how offensive, he's clueless. But I'm just, I just want you to know, and I get this, some of you might go, that is exactly why I have an issue with Christianity, because if you don't understand the bigger context of the Sinai Covenant, then it makes sense you hear something like that, and you go, well, I wouldn't want to follow a God like that either. And then they point out, and they pull out a context, and point out this part of it, or that part of it, and you go, well, yeah, I'm totally opposed to that. I'm not for any God who would say, do this or do that. And so people just walk away from the faith. So, I thought I would pause for just a minute and address this. Because I personally find it to be pretty clarifying and pretty helpful when you back away and you begin to understand the full perspective. One of the things that Dawkins brought up was all the sexual restrictions that are in the Sinai Covenant. So, I want to give you an example. If you want to read the Sinai Covenant, good luck. It's very dry. You can read it in Leviticus, okay? The entire, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year and they told you to start in Genesis, you made Genesis and Exodus pretty well. You got to Leviticus, you gave up, and you haven't tried since then because it is dry. It is rough, but that is the Sinai covenant. And in Leviticus, uh, specifically Leviticus 18, there are 19 different sexual restrictions or prohibitions that God gives the Jewish people to which some people go, well, see, that's exactly my problem. Like, why would God be so restrictive? I'm just not going to follow a God who's that restrictive. Well, there are a couple reasons why he gave it, and I'll make my point in a minute, but one of the things you need to understand is those restrictions were sexual practices that were practiced both in Egypt, where the Jews had just come from, and in Canaan, the land the Jews were going to. And so God's saying, I have have a divine purpose for you. You're a divine means to divine end. And so you can't live the way all, you watched all the Egyptians live, and you can't live the way you watch all the Canaanites live, because neither one of them are healthy, and neither one of them are in line with my design for human beings. Which you go, yeah, but I still don't think God should restrict. Okay, let me just read you one of these restrictions, okay? Because if you have a little bit of, oh, I just, you know, I'm a Christian, or I go to church, but I just, I'm not going to take it seriously because there are too many rules. Okay, here are one of God's rules. Look at this. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. That was one of the restrictions. Anybody got a problem with that one? I didn't think so. Like, it's common sense today, right? You shouldn't sleep with your mom or your dad. You shouldn't sleep with your brother or your sister. You know what? Don't sleep with your son or your daughter either. This is just pretty obvious, isn't it? But the reason God had to bring this up is because that was not so obvious to Jewish people who had watched the Egyptians do it for 400 years. And it was not going to be so obvious when they were watching the Canaanites do it in the land in which they were going to enter. Now, I'm not going to read all 19 sexual prohibitions or restrictions to you, okay? 
Hopefully your curiosity will peak enough, you just go read Leviticus 18 for yourself. But I will tell you this. 17 of the 19 behaviors prohibited in Leviticus 18 are illegal or frowned upon today. So people say, oh, it's so prohibitive and so out of date and it's so out of touch. 17 of the 19 prohibitions in all the developed countries of the world today, it's either illegal to do them or it's seriously frowned upon. This Sinai covenant was way, way, way ahead of its time. As a matter of fact, it was so ahead of its time that you have to fast forward 1,500 years to the time of Jesus. Okay, now think about this. From Moses and the Sinai covenant all the way to the time of Jesus when he walked this earth. And guess what was still happening in Egypt? Monarchs were still marrying their siblings. It took more than 1,500 years for the Egyptians to catch up with this practice, something that all of us today would go, well, of course, nobody should do that. That's a terrible idea. So I'm telling you, if you pick and choose and pull things out, it's easy to criticize. But I would go so far as to say that the Sinai Covenant is a moral and a civil code that when understood in its ancient context is actually brilliant. Now, what I mean by civil code is this. God wasn't just giving them a bunch of religious rules. And sometimes people read Leviticus and think, look at all the religious rules. 613 religious rules. Are you kidding me? They were not all religious rules. They weren't all about religious practice. Many of them were part of a civil code. A civil code is just a way to set up for a government to function and to operate. And God said, I want to be your leader and I'm, you're going to be my people. But I've got, to, I've got to, in essence, put some barriers, some laws in place so that you know how to govern and lead and behave as a people. And in its ancient context, it's brilliant. Now, if you have read it, or if you know people who have brought this up, you know one of the things that is said, and you might say this to me, well, Matt, how in the world could you call this brilliant? Because there are pieces of that. There are things in that that are just so reprehensible. There are things in that that we would never do today. There are things in that that Christians would never practice today. How can you say it's brilliant? Some of the things that are in there are illegal today. To which I would say, yes, absolutely, I understand that. But, Here is the problem, here's the mistake that we all make. We take something that was written 3,500 years ago, we rip it out of its ancient context, and then we try to apply it to 21st century standards, and we go, well, it falls way short of our standards. Any good ancient scholar will tell you, you can't take content, rip it out of its ancient context, and try to interpret it through today's standards or through today's lens. The reason I say it's brilliant is because if you look at it in the context of other moral and civil codes of 3,500 years ago, it was way, 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 way ahead of its time. If you look at it in the context of how all the other people in the world lived, oh my goodness, it was a radically different, unparalleled worldview that God was introducing through Moses with the Sinai Covenant. And it changed the way human beings related to one another. And it changed the way human beings behaved. And I would go so far as to say, we would not have the morals and the values we have today if it were not for the Sinai Covenant. That that is the foundation upon which everything we believe and the way we behave today was originally built. It was absolutely brilliant. To which you go, yeah, but there's stuff in there about slaves and there's stuff in there about this and that. I understand that. But you just have to know that God was being very patient as he introduced this and accommodating to the maturity level of the people with which he was dealing. And in a world where all of these behaviors and practices were normal, 
He couldn't change everything at once. So he decided, I'm going to step into the mess and I'm going to play by the kingdom, rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a new kingdom to this world. And he started. He didn't finish, but he started with the Sinai Covenant. I'll give you one quick example of why I think this is so brilliant. The protections that this covenant afforded to the vulnerable were revolutionary in ancient times. If you will read it, you will see that the protections that were afforded to women, to children, to slaves, to servants, to foreigners, they weren't practiced in any other ancient culture. It was brand new behavior. They were brand new values. And it all came through this Sinai covenant. So, back to the story. God gives Moses and the Jewish people the Sinai covenant. He gives them a land in which to live. They begin to practice this covenant within this land. They begin to follow these laws and these commands. And then the Jewish people start to look around at the nations around them, and they decide, well, we want what all the other cool kids have. We don't want to keep being governed by you, God. We want kings of our own. And God says, that's not going to work out for you very well. And they said, we want it anyway. So God said, okay, you can have it. So the Jewish people begin to have kings over their kingdom. And sure enough, it didn't work out very well because what happens when you have kings? Well, kings raise taxes. Nobody likes taxes. Kings end up in war. Nobody wants to lose a loved one in war. And in this culture and in this context, these kings began to look around at all the other kings around them and they realized, well, they've got a bunch of wives, so we should have a bunch of wives too. And the Jewish kings started to to gather multiple wives and they had what they called harems, which are just a group of all the women that they had who they were married to or who they had in their household. And it got very complicated and very difficult very quickly. As a matter of fact, for all of you gentlemen, here's just a basic rule of life. If you have a favorite wife, things are not going well for you in life. It's just a basic rule of thumb, okay? I think we all understand that. These Jewish kings didn't understand that. They had favorite wives, and then they they would change, and you're not the favorite anymore, you're the favorite. And finally, by the third king, by the third king, this third king, Solomon, was setting a harem record. He was setting a wives record. And there were just wives upon wives upon wives, about a thousand women altogether. Now, interestingly enough, and the reason I bring this up is because sometimes people are like, well, it could go both ways. No, it can't. Have you noticed you never have a problem with women wanting multiple husbands? That's never happened in history. There are no shows, sister husbands or brother husbands. You know, it's, those don't exist. It's only us guys who are dumb enough to do this. So Solomon, dumb, dumb enough, is, all of his wisdom, he missed it completely on this. And he ends up with multiple wives, which created all kinds of complications and problems. And then Solomon did something else. He built the temple. The temple, like all the other nations around them, they had temples to their gods. Solomon said, we should have a temple to our God. And so he built a temple. Now, in all the temples in all these nations, there was, in essence, what they called a God vault, which was right in the center of the temple. It would be considered the most holy place in the temple and the most holy place in the land. And if you had gone to any of these other surrounding nations and you had the ability to walk into their temple and they allowed you access to their God vault, when you walked in, here's what you would find. In addition to a lot of other artifacts, you would find an idol or a statue to whatever God that they worshipped. And the reason they had that idol or statue is because they believed their God could be put into the form of wood or stone. And so there it was. You would find a God if you would. They believed there's God right there in our God vault in the center of our temple. But if you walked into the Jewish temple and you were allowed access into the God vault, you would have found no idol. You would have found no stone structure. Because God had said, you can't make an image of me. 
because I can't be contained or reduced down to an idol. And so you would have walked in, you would have found largely an empty room with just a few artifacts in it, but no idol whatsoever. So over the years, even though the Jewish people had this temple, they didn't always follow God well. Sometimes that temple was a reminder to be faithful, but sometimes they ignored it entirely. And so if you, as you continue to read the history of the Jewish people, you discover that there were a whole lot of what they called prophets who came onto the scene. Prophets who would show up and would basically say, hey, God has a message for you. You're straying, you've forgotten him, you need to straighten up. In essence, the prophets would show up and say, okay, God is about to put you into time out. He's counting one, two, three, and then off they would go. And they'd go into captivity somewhere until they learned their lesson. And then God would bring them back and they'd follow him for a little while. And then they would mess up again and forget about him again and rebel. And so God would send another prophet who'd go one, two, three, and then time out again. You know? That was the history of the Jewish people over and over and over again. And if you read the writings of some of these prophets that are in the Jewish scriptures, they're, uh, for the most part, very contextualized. And so you read them, and sometimes it's hard to understand them. Sometimes you can't figure out where they're going. Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense to you because they are writing to a specific group of people at a specific point in time. And yet every now and then these prophets would write something, and they would say something that made no sense to the people of their time either. They would say, hey, God's at work through all of this. You, you think God's abandoned you, or you think God's not paying attention, or you think God's angry with you? Nope. We have a special relationship with him. He has a divine purpose for us, and that purpose is to reveal himself to the world through us, and God is one day going to show up here in our nation, in human flesh, as the Messiah, and he's going to do that, and he's going to save his people from their sins. And everybody who would read this or hear this would go, that makes no sense. What's he talking about? But the prophets would just continue on. And so for 2,200 years... From the time of Abraham, when it was first promised, all the way to when a young Jewish girl was pregnant. They waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they were confused, and they were confused, and they were confused, and they wondered at times, does God still have a purpose for us, and is he still going to use us? And then, as you and I know, with the benefit of hindsight, God steps into the world in the form, not of a king, not of a prophet, in the form of a baby, born in a manger. The Apostle Paul, who later became a follower of Jesus, he describes it this way. I find this pretty extraordinary. He says, but when the set time had fully come, Paul's writing, and he says, okay, our people, we waited for centuries and centuries and centuries. And we had no clue what was happening. Through all the, you know, the kings, through all the temple, through all the prophets, through all the rebellion, through all the, you know, God's blessing us, and now we've ignored him, and so, you know, we're in captivity, and now he's brought us back, and now we're ignoring him again, and we're back in captivity. He says, through all the, the roller coaster up and down history of our people, when we couldn't figure out where God was and if he still had a plan for us, he did. And just when the time was right, after God had shown up to Abraham, after he'd built a family which became a nation which had its own land. After Alexander the Great had conquered all of his kingdoms and had spread the Greek language to the known world, 
After Alexander the Great, think about this, after Alexander the Great had single-handedly created a common language for all the peoples in that part of the world, and then after the Roman Empire had come, and the Romans had conquered all of their kingdoms, and had built transportation, roads, and systems for news to travel, at just the right time when there was a language that the message could be spread throughout, and people would understand. At just the right time when there were roads and transportation systems where the message could get to the far reaches of the known world. At just the right time. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. Paul's saying to Jewish people, he's saying, listen, that Sinai covenant that you've spent your entire life trying to live by, and you can't live up to it, you can't meet it. The point was never to be able to practice it perfectly to earn your way into God's favor because you can't do it, and he knew you couldn't. But you were born under that, and you were born with the weight of trying to follow that law even though nobody could. God sent his son, born under the law, to live that law out perfectly, to redeem those who were under the law who couldn't that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, the Jewish people had always had a tendency to view God as a lawgiver. And Paul is saying, nope, everything's changed. Everything's changed. God is not your lawgiver. God is your heavenly Father. And the whole point of everything he's been doing through you is to reveal himself to the world. So all of you Jewish people, and shock to you, all of the non-Jewish people, Everybody's invited to have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. Everyone is invited not to live under a law. The law's unnecessary anymore. But to follow Jesus and to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. To experience a forgiveness, to experience a redemption. Through which we know everything is good between us and God. And we don't have a debt with God that we have to pay anymore. Paul says that was the whole point of it all. So when you look at these Jewish scriptures, I'm just telling you, they may be confusing, they may be difficult to understand, which is understandable, because it's a history of a Jewish people. But you don't have to sand off the rough edges or be embarrassed or try to ignore certain parts of it, because it is the epic, gritty, extraordinary History of God moving and proving his love, not just for Jewish people, but for God moving and proving his love for you. It is the backstory to God's entrance into the world and to an invitation for you to be a son or a daughter of his. So you don't have to ignore certain parts. You don't have to be, you know, wonder, oh my goodness, is there a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament? No, no, no. God was just up to a divine purpose. And he chose a special group of people to be a divine means to a divine end. So that we all could be invited into his family. But that also means that you shouldn't look at these Jewish scriptures as some spiritual guidebook where you can go in and just pick and choose these promises that sound good to you. And I'm going to hang that one up on the wall and that one feels good. Those weren't promises for you. Those were promises for Jewish people. Now, that doesn't mean some of them still don't 
apply to you or they're true for you in some way, it still doesn't mean that God doesn't want to do those things for you too. But you have to understand, you can't just pull a promise out of the middle of an ancient context and go, well, I'm going to throw that one on the wall and claim that one for me. That's how the Jewish scriptures get misinterpreted and misunderstood all the time. No, you have to understand those are promises of a God to his people through which he is working to accomplish a divine means and the divine end. Now, one of the questions I'm asked a lot about this is, so Matt, are you telling me, are you telling me that you actually believe all those stories that happen in the Jewish scriptures are true? You're telling me you believe there really was an Adam and Eve. You're telling me you really believe there really was a worldwide flood. You're telling me you really believe that Jonah, this guy named Jonah, was in the belly of a fish for three days and then he came out alive. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody would believe that. That's got to be made up. Well, I don't have time to get into all the reasons why now, and this may sound very naive, but I want to tell you why I believe and take seriously the Jewish scriptures. In a nutshell, it's because Jesus did. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve, so I do too. Jesus affirmed the worldwide flood, so I believe it too. Jesus said Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so I'm going with that. And my reasoning behind it all is real simple. I've said it before. When a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm going to trust him on whatever he has to say. So you may be way smarter than me, and you may be able to figure out all the reasons why that couldn't have possibly happened, and I get that. And as soon as you predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, I will listen to you. But up until that point, what he says is going to trump what you say, as hard as it may be to believe, okay? That's why I'll take the Jewish scriptures seriously, because Jesus took them seriously. But back to the first century. After the resurrection, you have hundreds and then thousands of non-Jewish Gentile followers of Jesus And they've got the four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They have these Jewish scriptures that suddenly they're so interested in. They're adopting it as Christian scripture and they're putting them into their Christian worship. And then they have correspondence from a few individuals, but largely from one, a famous church planter by the name of Paul, that they hold on to to help them understand how to live out this new ethic that Jesus introduced into the world. And these Gentile followers of Jesus, as they embrace these Jewish scriptures, they begin to give the Jewish scriptures a new name. And we cannot understand and and fathom how offensive this was to Jewish people. But they take the Jewish scriptures from them. And then they say, we're not going to call them Jewish scriptures anymore. We're not going to refer to it as the Hebrew Bible anymore. We're just going to call them the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. And then after a few years... They change to the Latin term, and they say, we're going to call it the Old Testament. Now, why in the world would these Gentile followers of Jesus in the early 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, why would they call the Jewish Scriptures this? They called it old because they understood that when Jesus showed up, he came to bring something brand new. They understood that when Jesus showed up, he had taught, I have fulfilled the Old Covenant. I have fulfilled the Jewish scriptures. That Sinai covenant that everybody needed to live by, I have lived by it perfectly. I have landed that plane. We don't need that anymore. God has used that tool to accomplish his divine purpose. And now I am here and I'm introducing something brand new. I'm introducing a brand new covenant where everybody's invited, everybody's included, and everybody gets in the same way. It's through trust in me. And that's all it takes. No laws to live by, no commands to follow. 
just trust in my death and resurrection. And then you want a law, you want a command, I've got one. Love one another the way I have loved you. That's it. That's it. And so these Gentile followers of Jesus begin to treat the Jewish scriptures in a different way and view them in a different way. To which it may raise the question for you, well, how should we treat these? I mean, how, how should I read the Old Testament? What should I take out of that? What's the point of it all? And it's a great question. It's a question that the Apostle Paul answers for us. And we'll look at it next week in the conclusion of the Bible for grown-ups. This week, here's what I want you to remember. No matter what questions or issues you have with stories in the Old Testament and what about the worldwide flood and what about Jonah and this and that and the other, no matter how many questions you have, all of those are ancillary. You know the question that is at the heart and the center of everything to do with Christianity, the one question you have to answer is simply, who is Jesus? Once you figure that out, once you decide what you believe about him, then everything else will take care of itself. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for going to such extraordinary lengths to reveal yourself to us. Thanks for preserving these Jewish scriptures for thousands and thousands of years. It's just remarkable that we can open up our Bibles and we can read these still today. We can read words Moses wrote, David wrote. We're so grateful for that. And we're so grateful for the inspiration that they provide. And we're so grateful for this extraordinary story that they tell of you showing up to accomplish a divine purpose through the Jewish people. Thanks for being willing to go to such great lengths to reveal yourself to us. And at just the right time, setting foot on this planet to show us who you are. And most of all, thanks for Jesus, the one who died and rose again, so we could be adopted as sons and daughters of you. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.